0: Greetings, I am your non-algorithmic host for this episode, Robert J. Marks. How do ants find the closest distance from the Milky Way bar you dropped on the sidewalk back to their anthill? How do bees know how to build their hives? Or termites, uh, how to build their homes that control temperature? The answer is algorithms. Algorithms. Algorithms that these insects are born with, algorithms that are step-by-step procedures for doing something. And remarkably, insects, again, are born pre-programmed to follow these algorithms. Our guest today is Eric Castle. In his new book, Animal Algorithms, published by Discovery Press, he explores these and other remarkable innate algorithmic properties embedded in animals when they are born, Today we talk about how simple bugs living together do remarkable complex things. Eric, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be back, Bob. Okay, Eric. What, what is the primary aspect of insect social behavior that makes it so complex?
1: Well, the thing that's interesting about insects um, is that many of them have uh, social behavior where that involves uh, significant numbers of the animals living in colonies. And these colonies are not just a case of just simply um, a number of animals just simply living together, sharing a nest, etc. The, the colonies themselves are actually quite complex. And as time has gone on and scientists investigate these uh, more in more detail, they're finding more and more Uh, information about how just how complex these colonies are some of them the ones that are the sort of the largest colonies uh, the scientists define these as being eusocial Um, and that involves a number of things where for example there's a division of labor you have um,
0: Okay, eusocial, uh, you you're, you're about to define that. It means this division of labor?
1: Right, uh, right. That's one of the primary indications of what represents a, a colony of insects that would be eusocial. So the, there's a division of labor where some, some of the ants might be responsible for foraging, some of them uh, for maintenance of the nest, some of them for tending to the queen. Uh, some of them for um, tending to or feeding uh, the, the young, et cetera. So there's there's that aspect. The other aspect of these these types of social uh, constructs is the re- um, reproduction, how reproduction occurs. So uh, in in a, in a number of them, in most cases, if there's a single queen only that reproduces. Sometimes they have uh, multiple queens. But basically, what uh, is going on with this division of labor is there's actually different castes That's a term that's C-A-S-T-E-S, where, we're, where you're dividing up the, the group amongst specific uh, subgroups of animals. And these are the subgroups then are the responsibility of doing these different tasks in the colony and again, when it comes to reproduction, the queen would be one primarily responsible for producing the offspring, but then there's another caste of males that's responsible for um, uh, inseminating the queen for reproduction. So there's a, there's a lot of division of responsibilities and that whole aspect of it becomes quite complex in these larger groups that we call eusocial.
0: So, in eusocial swarms, not all insects are created equal. They They can never have, uh, they can never obtain equality in any way.
1: Right, that's right, yeah. Um, And there's some, and we'll talk about this a little bit later as well, but one of the cast, for example, typically does not even reproduce at all in in these um, social colonies. In your book, you talk
0: about a superorganism. What is a superorganism?
1: So that's a term that um, uh, some of the scientists came up with to talk about these most advanced eusocial organizations. In other words, these are the largest ones. And the reason they call them a a a superorganism is because the attributes of the colony has a lot of analogy with an organism. So in other words, what they're saying is, if you think of an organism, we have a number of different organs within our body, the heart, the lungs, brain, skin, etc., doing different functions within the, within the body. And so what they're saying is, in, the, in these, in these superorganisms, uh, colonies, again, they're made up of thousands or even in some cases millions of individuals, Different groups of animals within that colony are doing different functions, and they tend. So, what they're saying is, you can tend to think of that as sort of a, the equivalent of an organism. Um, it's just that it's made up of a, of a bunch of different individual animals. Hmm. And again, some of these, some of these uh, superorganisms, particularly ants, termites, they can be. Uh, comprised of millions of individuals, and some of the research uh, into these, um, uh, as an example, in the Amazon rainforest, uh, these types of colonies actually make up a huge portion of the biomass, which is incredible when you think about it, about the fact that these animals, types of animals and the colonies have really become kind of a dominant form of life in these regions. You know, it,
0: it occurred to me that in a way our functioning part of our bodies are kind of like swarms that don't move. We we have a bunch of cells, for example, in our lung. Everything, as I understand from biology, starts out as stem cells, and then they become different types of, of cells. But it seems that in our lung, for example, we have a bunch of cells, and they're not insects, but they're they're little individual agents that act together towards a greater good. Uh, so we're, I guess we're an organism, and the idea insect swarms are a superorganism where these individual agents are, are, are crawling around and not directly connected to each other. You, you mentioned different castes, for example, in the swarm colony. Other than that, what role do algorithms play in insect social colonies?
1: Well, and you just sort of uh, touched on that. The the problem here is the fact that these are separate individuals. When we think of a single organism, there is um, sort of overall control uh, and coordination amongst the different organs, if you will, within an an animal. So that's all uh, embedded within the animal and controlled within the animal. Uh In the case of these colonies, these are actually separate animals, they are all individual, completely separate autonomous animals. Then the question arises, okay, how is the behavior of all these individuals controlled? And the first answer is, there is no overarching overall control, in other words, there's not some higher level mechanism that controls the behavior of the individuals within the colony that we know of so that means that the behaviors of the individuals somehow is programmed into each individual such that the these algorithms that must reside within the individual ant or termite for example must be programmed such that they know what task they're supposed to be doing at any given time, that in and it itself is must be extremely complex. And we know that there's a lot of information that actually is being used and exchanged for these animals to make these decisions. So one of one of the ways that they do this is that they use pheromones, ch- basic chemicals that are exchanged between the individual animals and these chemicals or pheromones are actually used as an indication, okay, something is going on in the environment or something is going on amongst this other group of individuals in the colony. Therefore, I must be doing this task. For example, foraging, tending to the queen, etc. And one of the things that's been found is that there are some ants Species that use as many as 30 or 40 different pheromone or chemical compounds that are exchanged amongst the colony. And (laughs) that also is just in and of itself is a highly complex mechanism because you have to have the, the mechanism within the animal to actually just simply detect the presence of this chemical compound. And then once you detect it, that information is then used to govern the behavior. So there's a lot going on in these colonies that's controlling their overall behavior as a group, because again, there's a goal here that the behavior of the entire group must be governed to act to benefit the overall life of the colony.
0: I found this fascinating in your book. All of these different pheromones. So you have one pheromone, for example, that tells the ant how to get home. Uh, you have another, I mentioned in the beginning about the the shortest distance between the Milky Way bar and the ant hill. And the way that's accomplished, as I understand, is that the ants lay down pheromone, and that the ants are marching back and forth with little pieces of your Milky Way bar to the to the ant hill, and uh, they follow a pheromone path. In fact I have had fun if you ever see one of these ant uh, trails you know these they, they, there's a little line of ants going back and forth if you dampen your fingers and you break that trail the ants go up to where you've broken the trail and they get confused they don't know what to do they don't know where what path to follow. Now, eventually they break on through to the other side and they rediscover the path going back and forth. But just by interrupting that with wetting your fingers and interrupting that path, uh, you have ruined their day. They don't know how to get back and forth. And of course, I would advise if anybody did this, wash your hands after you're done because you got ant (laughs) pheromone on them.
1: Yeah, that's and that's that's exactly right and that's that and that but that's also an illustration of the in this case ants the, there is a lot of programming going on in other words these algorithms are programmed. but the other interesting part of that is that they are actually able to adapt in real time so if not, in other words like in the example you cited you broke the path they still figure out a way to adapt and the same they thing is do. true for other parts of their behaviors where if something's going on in the environment like part of the nest for example gets destroyed you'll see the the ants immediately stop what they're doing and go repair the nest so there's a lot of adaptability in the way they behave which again means these algorithms are highly adaptive and programmed to account for these different contingencies yeah.
0: You know, there's lots of engineering applications where we have learned from swarm. One is called the ant colony optimization. It is literally an optimization algorithm that's based on swarm. I have, an, I have a friend, Russ Eberhardt, who with a colleague named Kennedy had particle swarm, which was based on social insect swarms that also performed optimization. And I tell you, one of the most chilling things I think that we have to face today is swarms of drones, where these drones come along in a swarm, and it's just like the anthill you mentioned. You kick it over, and you come back in a week, and it's rebuilt. It's the same thing with these drone swarms of, say, thousands of different drones, and they attack. And if you get through, they can accomplish their mission. And uh, this is this has been chilling. I think that there's ways to counteract those military swarms, but again, these are things that we are learning learning from swarm technology and the techniques that you're talking about that we can apply to everyday applications in engineering. We're learning from the swarms.
1: Yeah, and and then and then, uh, a related aspect of that um, is artificial intelligence, because obviously drones and a lot of other um, devices that are being developed today involve ar- artificial intelligence right so well, one of the things that they're learning about it is the fact that it's much more complex to program these drones even to just mimic what animals do because the behaviors are actually way more complex than people thought and that and, but then the implication of that is these the, the artificial intelligence the computer programs do end up having to be really complex and sophisticated, which again is a further indication of how sophisticated the algorithms are in these animals.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And there is a
0: field of uh, artificial intelligence called swarm intelligence that specifically investigates the application of social insect swarms to engineering, what can we learn out of insect social um, behavior? And really? Um, it's really a fascinating field. You know, we still get back to where does this come from? What, what are some of the challenges for naturalism in explaining this behavior, this complex behavior we see in social insect colonies?
1: So, yeah, there's a number of challenges, I believe, for um, Darwinian evolution in explaining this the the complex algorithms is one part of it again uh, as we've mentioned before if you have a a complex algorithm and if we think of it in terms of for example a computer program that is is large has a number of lines of code that we, that we would program it's again trying to develop such a system that works properly through a simple trial and error process in other words random mutations and and natural selection, it's very difficult to see how that kind of a process could result in such a, a highly complex uh, functional system. The other aspect of this that's a little bit sort of a side issue in terms of what I've examined uh, in terms of the, uh, the book and, and the social behaviors is the notion of altruism, where uh, as I mentioned before, there are some casts in these um, large social colonies, particularly insects, that don't reproduce, which, okay, you would say, well, okay, so what? But the, the, the problem that presents for uh, regular Darwinian evolution is that, for example, under the Richard Dawkins theory of the selfish gene,
0: mm-hmm. if
1: an animal doesn't recruit, reproduce at all, how does it advance the progeny and, and contribute to the next generation? Why would such an animal even exist? But they do exist in these large social colonies. So that has presented a problem, and actually Darwin even recognized this in his time. Uh, he wrote about it where this kind of phenomena with particularly the social insects presented a problem for his theory, that the fact that these types of Uh, these casts actually exist in these colonies where they don't even reproduce at all. He wrestled with that. He did not have an explanation. More recently, evolutionary biologists have come up with a theory. They they call it inclusive fitness, which basically means that uh, when you examine the group as a whole, uh, the group or species or population in this case in a colony benefits from the fact that some subgroups do not reproduce but they're contributing to the overall existence of the colony and propagating the colony over time by doing certain roles and tasks within the colony but actually not reproducing. And they go through a really it's a complex mathematical calculation to show that okay you're sharing your genes or at least a portion of your genome with the other animals in the colony. Therefore in an indirect way, you are benefiting even though that group of animals is not actually reproducing. Mm -hmm. It's a controversial theory. Most many evolution advocates believe that that's a reasonable explanation. Others have contested that. And there's a lot of, uh discussion in the literature uh, that's gone back and forth about this, about whether that theory is actually adequate or not. That issue doesn't really impinge directly on what my assertions are about these issues uh, in terms of social insect colonies and the origin of these behaviors. That is a related issue, but more fundamental issue, again, is where does the information come from? that programs these complex algorithms and controls the behaviors of all these individuals in in a colony. And, and again, the uh, w- another aspect of this that there actually has been quite a bit of research done that's in the literature is examining the, the genomes of a number of these insects and uh, bees, ants, termites, et cetera. And what they have found is that the, the species that engage in these social, the larger social colonies, the, again, the superorganism type of colonies, the, the genomes indicate that there's actually a large number of either novel or genes that have been modified in these animals. And that, that they range from hundreds, in some cases, thousands of genes, again, that are either completely novel genes that have no common ancestry in, in the um, related animals previous, or they're modified in some way.
0: I think I've heard those called orphan genes. Is that right? Yeah,
1: they're, yeah the term they use are called orphan genes.
0: They have no ancestry.
1: Right. So, again, the question is, does regular Darwinian evolution provide a good explanation for that? And the answer really is no. That's one of the problems that's been a challenge for uh, Darwinian evolution is that uh, that really is, again, random mutation, natural selection. How do you explain, for example, hundreds of these novel genes all of a sudden appearing in a population or species? Mm -hmm. Darwinian evolution really can't explain that, whereas... From a more of a design perspective, that's a, a little bit better, but I think much better explanation that this could be a result of design.
0: You know, next, we're going to get together one more time, and we're going to talk more about where the algorithms in animals come from. That's going to be, to me, a very, very exciting podcast. We've been talking to Eric Castle about his new book entitled Animal Algorithms. So until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.